Today we're going to talk about the origins of mammals. That's right, we're going to go all the way back to the Jurassic and talk about when the earliest mammals were walking with dinosaurs. Let's get started. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Patrick. And today I'm joined by Dr. Elsa Pancharoli, the Lieberhume Early Career Research Fellow at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History in England and Associate Researcher at National Museum Scotland. She's also the author of a new book called Beasts Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution, which is coming out in the U.S. on September 7th. She's here today to talk to us about her recent paper in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, in which she and her co-authors describe a new species of an extinct mammaliform, as well as a new genus of mammaliform, all from the British Isles. Welcome, Elsa. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for being on. I know that our time difference here between the central U.S. and England is, makes things a little goofy, but I'm glad that we can catch you in the afternoon and me in the morning. <laughs> Let's jump right into this. What exactly are mammaliforms? It's the, the entire topic of the paper, and it's, it's obviously got the word mammal in it. So can you explain to us what a mammaliform is? Yeah, I think this is one of these scientific technical terms that can end up, you kind of get in knots trying to explain it, but it's actually really, really simple. So we are mammals and belong to this group called mammalia. So that's the kind of scientific name for our group. And then the, the mammals that are really closely related to us but are not quite mammalians are mammaliforms. So they are very, very close relatives. And kind of colloquially speaking, they're still mammals, um, but scientifically and technically they're just outside that, uh, that kind of main group that we're part of. And so what, what makes them slightly different? Like what makes a mammal a mammal and a mammaliform not quite a mammal? Oh, it's all to do with details of their skeletons and their teeth. So, of course, all of these different classifications, it ends up being that it hinges on such tiny little changes in their anatomy, doesn't it? Uh, so that's the case with uh, mammals and mammalia forms. But also um, we trace the actual mammalians back to the common ancestor of the animals that are alive today. So that's our uh, ourselves, so the placental mammals, the marsupial mammals, uh, so the ones that generally have pouches, um, and then of course platypuses and echidnas, which are the last members of the monotremes, the third mammal group. So those are all mammalians and we trace them back to a common ancestor, which we don't actually know what it was or when exactly it lived, but it was around about 160 million years ago. And that puts us pretty close or right in the middle of the Jurassic, actually, right? Absolutely, and yeah. Time of dinosaurs. Yeah, and, and actually the title of your paper even says that these are from the middle Jurassic. And you found these in the British Isles, which is very close to where, obviously, you are based as far as where you live currently. That's uh, right. Tell us a little bit about all of this. What do we mean when we say Middle Jurassic? We just said it's about 160 million years ago. That covers a slightly larger time period when we talk about the Middle Jurassic. What, about 174 to 155 million years ago, somewhere in that range? Does that sound about right? 
Yeah, so the Jurassic period in general, um, it is from around about 200 million years ago to about 145 million years ago. So quite a long time period, a very long time ago. But the middle of the Jurassic is uh, between 174 and 163 million years. Okay, so these are coming into the late Jurassic just a little bit. You're talking about the origin of mammals when you say 160 million years ago. So we're coming out of the middle Jurassic into the late or upper Jurassic. Does that sound about right? Yeah, well, this is the thing is that we don't know precisely when a lot of these groups emerge. Uh, and by the late Jurassic, there's lots and lots of groups and lots of uh, members of uh, our sort of earliest ancestors, basically these mammalians. Um, but the middle Jurassic is probably where they actually originate, we just have to find all the fossils to show how that journey happened. And that's part of what I'm really interested in is, is putting those two things together, getting from those uh, original animals, which we don't have the fossils for yet, to, um, to yeah, the earliest members of the mammalian lineage. And, and paint us a picture of the world in the middle Jurassic. How, what's going on? You said it's the age of dinosaurs and we still have mammals showing on. So going on here, uh, paint us a picture of what the world is like at that time? Like if I were just to go back in time and start walking, what would I be finding? What would I be seeing? Well, we can start, first of all, let's start from space. Okay, so let's say we've arrived. Our, our space, we have a time machine that actually is also a spacecraft. First of all, if you were looking down at the Earth, most of the continents are still joined together or they are only just breaking apart. Um, and this breaking apart is one of the things that makes the whole world really interesting because it's starting to split up populations of animals. So then we uh, land our spacecraft and get out. The world was generally a lot warmer and particularly um, not just the UK, but we would be about the same latitude as the US at this time. We'd have been much, much warmer. Um, and here in Scotland and England, it would have been much more sort of tropical climate. So quite different from now. It would have been warm, probably rained just as much, if not more. Um, but we would have had <laughs> quite a different uh, flora and fauna around about us. Uh, for example, there were no flowering plants yet. So you wouldn't see any flowers. There was no grass, for example. There were lots of much earlier types of plants and also things like conifers, you know, pine trees, things like that. So we would have looked sort of strangely a mix of being quite familiar, but also a little bit strange, a little bit different. And of course, uh, filled with dinosaurs. And that's the next part I was going to ask. So that's, that's the flora that we're talking about. Tell us about the fauna. How safe would I feel walking around right <laughs> where these organisms were? That's that a, you're describing your paper. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I always imagine it. If you go for a walk in a forest or any habitat today, um, the things that you see are the slightly bigger things, mostly. You, you know, you would notice a deer, you would notice, or a cow, we could say, because obviously we have lots of them, cows and sheep and things. But actually, all around you are lots and lots of very, very tiny animals. But in the fossil record, those are the ones we have much less information about. But there were probably millions more of them. So I imagine that if you were walking through the Middle Jurassic, you might spot a dinosaur or two, some of the big herbivores, um, the two-legged carnivores. You obviously want to watch out for those. Um, and the very earliest ancestors of birds. So you would have had these dinosaurs that were very feathery and looked bird-like but weren't weren't quite there yet. Um, but under your feet and in the undergrowth there would have been animals like the ones described in my paper which would have essentially looked kind of like modern little mammals like little rats, little mice, um, the things that we're quite familiar with 
but they weren't quite. They were something ever so slightly different. But to see the differences, you really have to look at their anatomy and their teeth. And one of the things that we associate when we think about mice and the like are the way that the ears come out normally. These didn't necessarily have that, right? Didn't it stay closer to their head in, in this group at this kind of time period? Or, or had they actually started to get kind of the Mickey Mousey look to them yet? <laughs> yeah, they, we call them pinny. The, the, we've got them as well, of course, basically ear flaps. Yeah, you're right. We don't know when exactly they appeared. The oldest fossil uh, ear flaps, we do actually have some, and that's uh, from the Cretaceous, which is much later in evolution. Um, so we're not sure when they appeared, but there's been studies that kind of show that these ear flaps tend to make it easier to hear really, really high pitches rather than low pitches. Uh, we know from studying the anatomy of their ears that they probably couldn't hear high pitches yet. So uh, the kind of logical conclusion is that in the Middle Jurassic, probably most mammals didn't have ear flaps. They would have had a just a hole in the side of their head and a smooth, a smooth head, you know, furred and covered up, a bit like... Um, Oh, like some, kind of like a furry lizard, maybe. Well, more like if you imagine a shrew, you know, shrews and moles, sure. they don't have external ears either. Something a bit more like that. Okay. Yeah. So still, still kind of maybe a little bit more bullet shaped, but mm. kind of fuzzy and, and still recognizable to us as like, oh, that's definitely something that looks like a mammal as opposed to a lizard. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't make that mistake. Uh, I think if you saw it running, some of these animals, their legs maybe were sticking out to the side a bit more rather than being underneath them. But it would have been such a subtle difference. You probably wouldn't even notice. You would just think it was a regular mammal running along. When we start looking at that anatomy, this is where we have to kind of take a look specifically at what you found. Uh, you found parts of the skull, right? So what do we know about these fossils? Tell us about how big these things are and kind of the pieces that you were able to find. And we'll get into how you were able to look at them in detail after this. But let's just talk with the initial discovery here. What was it was found and how about how big are they? So uh, this paper talks about the skulls, but we do actually have um, a whole partial skeleton. And that paper will be coming out really soon. So, uh, yeah, watch out for that one. Stay tuned. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the skulls, of course, are the really interesting bit for, for erecting a new, a new taxa, a new species or genus, which is why this paper focuses on them. Now, the story of, of the discovery of these particular fossils, I think, is really quite interesting because they've been in the collections in the museum, the National Museum of Scotland, for um, over 40 years. They were found in the early 1970s, in 1972, um, by the person who found the very first um, mammal fossils from the Jurassic in Scotland. Um, and they were, people knew immediately that they were really, really important fossils. But of course, they're very, very small. I said they're about the size of mice. They really are tiny. So the bones are really delicate and really difficult to examine. So although um, you know, experts tried to remove some of the rock and get at the bones to examine them, it's extremely difficult. And, um, you know, a sort of long story short, they ended up kind of being put to one side, uh, waiting somebody to have a look at them, and it just never happened. So cut to about five or six years ago, and um, a PhD was put together um, to look at these fossils and actually describe them for the first time. And I was the person who was lucky enough to, to get that PhD. Um, and that's how this particular fossil has been described. That's what I spent the last few years doing. Um, and I added actually the new species is uh, one that we found just a few years ago that is the same genus. So they're both Borealeses, um, but the new one uh, is this, this newer specimen, but it's found from the same site up on the Isle of Skye. Um, and again, lots of lovely tiny, tiny little bones. 
And since you brought it up, I, we'll, we'll skip back to how you were able to look at those bones in just a second, but you mentioned the name of the genus, Boreal Estes. Obviously, it has the word boreal in it. Can you tell us just a little bit about the origin of that particular genus name? Mm. And, and why does it come about? Does it have something to do with what the habitat is assumed to be, or does it have a different meaning going behind it? No, well, the people that found the skeletons, um, well, the person who found the very first fossil was this a really lovely guy, uh, Mike Waldman, Dr. Mike Waldman, who is a teacher uh, here uh, in England. And he had actually led a group of students up there to do some outdoor training. Um, and he found the fossil and took it back to his colleague, who was an expert in mammals, um, Robert Savage. And the two of them ended up going back and finding these other fossils. And so they together came up with a name. And the boreal, as you pick out, is to do with northern. But it was mainly just because it's the most northerly point in the UK where anything like this had ever been found. So we have fossils from mammals from the Jurassic from England, bits and pieces, nothing this complete. Um, so boreal is is pertaining to the north so northern and then lesties meaning like a rogue or a brigand uh, you know a sort of a cheeky thief so it's basically the northern rogue um sure yeah i thought i think it's a pretty it's a pretty good name the northern rogue it's kind of a very what's the word it's very appropriate. Outlander fans will probably like it. <laughs> That's, yeah, I was, I was actually going to make exactly that reference right there. So you beat me to it. <laughs> now, I want to step back then uh, to what we had alluded to. I've, I've alluded to twice already. How did you get to look at these fossils while they're still in the rock? Mm-hmm. Right? Because you, you had said that it's very difficult to remove these things from the rock and, and you can actually damage the fossils while you're doing it. So how did you get to look at them while they're still embedded in rock? Mm. This was one of the biggest problems that we had. So when I started my PhD, the very first thing I wanted to do was obviously to get um, the detail of the fossils and to scan them, CT scan them. Um, So this is just like a a CT or an X-ray you'd get in a hospital, but much, much, much higher powered X-rays. So you couldn't, um, for example, put your arm under these X-rays because they would actually damage you. You know, they're very radioactive. Burn, yeah. Oh yeah, this would be serious stuff. So that's what I tried first. And I scanned it at multiple facilities and couldn't get the scans to work because the blocks that these fossils are in, first of all, were too big. Um, And the actual rock itself, um, you know, some materials, some types of rock pass x-rays through them much more easily than others. And it turns out that the rocks from Sky are really, really difficult. They don't pass the x-rays through them very well at all. So I ended up actually having to take it to a synchrotron which is um, is also X-ray. It's also the same kind of idea as a CT scan, but much, much more powerful. Uh, it can get through much more difficult materials and also you get much higher resolution, much more detail in the results. Um, and a couple of amazing experts from that facility um, in France, actually, uh, had to take it to, they managed to get the scans we needed. And that meant we could we didn't have to remove the fossils from the rock at all because we could just digitally reconstruct them and study them that way. And what did you find when you when you got through with this like high power X ray CT scanning? Mm. There, well, there's a, a lot of uh, little bones on the surface, and um, of course, so we knew about those. Um, and in fact, you talked about how they get damaged. Some of the bits had actually fallen off the surface. Luckily, we still had them, so we could scan them separately. But it shows how delicate this fossil was. 
So when we scanned it, we of course, uh, what we hoped for was that we would see more bones underneath and that's exactly what we saw. It was like, you know, suddenly you could see through the rock and there's, the, the most beautiful bit is actually um, a little vertebrae, a little piece of the spine with ribs coming out of it all around in a, in a wee sort of array around about oh, it. Oh, that's like Christmas in paleontology land. Oh, it is really beautiful. As I say, that paper is just about to come out. It's been accepted and will be out really soon. Um, but yeah, it, it was wonderful. It was just really great to know that there was more of the skeleton in there. And tell us about this. So the first one, I believe, is Borealestes serendipitous, right? That's right. Which is just an amazing name, serendipitous by itself. But the second one is Kulinensis. That's right. Uh, Borealestes Kulinensis. Uh, we'll get to how you picked that name in just a moment, but I want to talk about how you found the fossil. Tell us a little bit about what it takes to find a fossil if you're, if you're looking for one. It's not as easy as just finding the one that you already had sitting in a collection. They had to go out and find it too. And the Isle of Skye is not the most inviting area, as I get it, from some of the places where you were looking. It's a little more difficult to get to. And like anything in the Isle of Skye, they're going to make your life a little harder just because they want to make sure that they stand alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, certainly people do think of the Isle of Skye as quite remote. Uh, I mean, it's it's difficult to get to from the major cities. Um, but of course, it's quite a tourist hotspot. A lot of people do visit yeah, it for... Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of dinosaur fossil footprints and things like that. Um, and there are very proud folk up that way, as I understand. Oh, well, I mean, rightly so. I mean, it's a beautiful place. And there's a really strong Gaelic-speaking culture uh, there as well. Um, but the, the fossils that we're studying, of course, are really, really tiny. So if you've got this picture in your mind of, of you know, just wandering along and you just go, aha, there's a fossil, it doesn't work like that. I mean, we have to spend hours and hours just crawling around on our hands and knees um, in amongst these quite large boulders, um, looking for the bones. And the bones don't look like a beautiful little arranged skeleton. They tend to look really quite rubbish. I mean, they they look like somebody just flecked some tar on the rock. It doesn't even look like a skeleton. Um, so they're quite ugly, to be honest, very ugly fossils. But we know from experience that um, if we take them away and we CT scan them, that's when you get the detail. And that's when you realise that that black blob of nothing is actually, um, you know, bits of a skeleton. So really, we can only study them because we have that technology. And you sent me a wonderful video that I'll put in the episode notes uh, that, that, had, that talked about this particular paper and the discoveries that you have in it. And one of the people in that was one of your co-authors, Richard Butler. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the excitement of running across this, going across the rocks. I just encourage the listeners to, to take a look at that video. It's only a, two or three minutes long. And the, the pure joy and excitement that comes across your co-author's face as he describes that moment of finding a little fleck of tar, as you describe it, like a little black spot on the rock. And he's like, wait, 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 what's this? Yeah. <laughs> is, is really magical. And so you're probably out there, it, I'm assuming it's not exactly always the driest habitat. So you're probably <laughs> out there in rain and cold and having to scour these rocks. Oh, yeah. Is it? Yeah, field work. Go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say field work is, is a, a mixed bag. I mean, people do have a very sort of, um, <laughs> what's the word, idealised view of it. But it's actually, it's mostly pretty tedious. Uh, you spend a lot of time finding nothing. 
um, and yes, the weather is extremely variable depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, it can be punishingly dry. I've also done field work, for example, in South Africa, where my nose was bleeding every day because it was so dry. Um, but then, of course, it's kind of the opposite on sky, as you may imagine. It's rather moist and, uh, yeah, you, you do get periodically rained on and you can't just go back and take shelter at home. You know, you have to stay out all day long. Um, so it can be it can be quite physically demanding. Um, and it's pretty windy up in that part too, right? It, it can Don't be. you get punished by the wind and some of the chill as well? Oh, yeah. Often we tend to go um, out of season. Um, partly because the rocks we're looking in are on the seashore. And if we go in the height of summer, for example, they tend to be covered in barnacles and things and we can't find anything. So we go really early in the year or really late in the year. And quite often the hills and the mountains have most snow on them. So it is, it's reasonably cold. Um, yeah, you just have to wrap up warm and, you know, jog in the spot every now and then. And, and, and we all keep each other going as well. You know, you described about how Richard was so excited to find this fossil but you know as a team we're all always so excited by everything that we do find and we tend we work very much together so we'll find something and then we'll literally call everybody else over and we'll all take a look and then we'll talk together what do we think do we think it's actually something or do we think it's maybe just you know a, a fleck of nothing and you it's quite difficult to tell we've got our hand lenses out and yeah it's quite a social experience as well yeah, it's, it's funny when we talk about fieldwork in, in a variety of areas. So I've talked to people from all over the world now doing their fieldwork. And we always have this kind of, in retrospect, uh, kind of almost nostalgic feel to it. Like, oh, yeah, it was really great when we found this or when we did this. And at the time, we have a real, you know, we, we, we're miserable as we're out there <laughs> digging through the dirt, not finding anything, as you, as you point out, or, or baking in the heat or whatever our conditions are. We have a real love-hate relationship with our field seasons, don't we? Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but the, you, you do get it punctuated by these moments of brilliance where you're like, wait, 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 what is this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's definitely yeah. one of my favorite things. Uh, I mean, obviously, as you'll, you'll probably also know, it's not, people imagine that's all I do, but, you know, it's only a few weeks of the year that I get to do that. And the rest of the time, I'm sat in front of a computer in an office. It's uh, much more boring than it sounds. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I do love that I get to take videos or, or pictures outside and say this is my office for at least part of the year as I stand in like this broad open grassland or or wherever I might be at the moment. It's true. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful moment, and they're they're not they're not all year long, but they 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 do add up. Yeah, it's great to when people talk about I get to talk about field work and I'm sure you probably get this feeling as well. I get paid to be five. <laughs> I get paid to crawl around in the dirt and look for bugs and spiders and you get paid to crawl around on rocks and look for fossils. Yeah. Like that's that we're we're getting paid to do what five year olds want to do their entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I did allude to the uh, specific epithet on this one, Kulinensis. Mm. Uh, how did you pick that name? It, it's Well, I'll just let you describe it. Go ahead. How did you pick the name Kulinensis? Yeah, well, when we realized that this was a new species, um, one of the first things that I wanted to do was speak to people from the community, from Sky, and ask them for advice about how we should name it. And as I mentioned earlier, there they are um, Gal a lot of Gaelic speakers up there, and some of the really active um, people who've been finding fossils are uh, na native Gaelic speakers. So I said to them, you know, we have this new species, here are some ideas I thought of, what do you think? And so we had quite a long sort of back and forward by email. And in the end, we settled on Kulinensis. 
Now, this is for the mountains on Sky. If you if you Google the Isle of Sky, you invariably get photographs of the what are called the black coolin, as opposed to the red coolin, which is also on Sky. Um, and these are really jagged, dark rocks that are, are just they're stunning to look at. Very dramatic mountains. And you can see them from the place that we found the fossil. So they're a kind of ever-present backdrop to, to our work. And so this just seemed like the absolute fitting name for, for this little little beastie um, was to name it after that, that mountain range, so Coolinensis. But it goes a little bit further than that, right? Because I've had a lot of people on who name species after the the location where it's found. But you have a more specific reason. It's not just because they're always looking over you. You said it has to do with the shape of the teeth mm. even kind of remind you of the peaks of the Kulinensis Mountains, right? That's absolutely true, yeah. The, the, the teeth of this little mammal are very... Well, they've got lots of cusps, so they're very sort of jagged, you know, lots of points and troughs. And yeah, this is exactly what the Kulin look like. Yeah, so you've added a romantic layer to <laughs> naming it after the geography, in my opinion. And then <laughs> Maybe... And then you had to do some additional work. One of the species that was originally thought to be in Borealestes, uh, you have shown to not actually be. So you had to erect a new genus, a whole new genus for it. Uh, and we, we don't need to get into the fine details of exactly what led into that. That's, that's you looking at the teeth and looking at, at various other things. And you decide like, oh, I think this is actually not Borealestes. This is new and I don't have a place to put it. So you, you erect a new genus. What's the name of that genus and how did you pick that name? Yeah, we ended up calling it Dabunadon. Um, and it's, so it's Dabunadon Massetti. So it's, um, the name uh, was actually my co-author Stig's idea. Um, so this this little, um, it's only one tooth and then a few other teeth that were also thought to belong to the same genus. And as you say, it was thought to be Borealestes, but it was actually found in England, at a different site that is from the same age and there's a lot of the same animals found there. Um, but yeah, by, by looking at it, we kind of realise it isn't in the same group. So Dabunadon comes from the name of a Celtic tribe that uh, lived in the area that it was found, which is in Oxfordshire, which is where I'm, I'm currently uh, living and working. So yeah, so Dabunadon, basically of the Dabuni, of the, the ancient tribe. And when you were you were deciding all of this, you had to look at the teeth, and this was something a little a little different. And I, and I don't think most people appreciate this. You had mentioned it earlier, and I want to just reiterate it. When it comes to deciding between species of mammals, it often boils down to teeth. Even in some of our our currently living species, the extant species, I know, for example, in shrews, sometimes the only way to tell the difference between two species is to look at the teeth, which is a little unfortunate if you're in the field holding a live one. <laughs> well, it's one of the two. I don't know which one unless I kill it and look at the teeth. Mm. But yeah, yeah. And that's that's not always a great option, right? <laughs> but but that's something you had to look at. There was something special with these particular teeth that made you kind of say, well, we know that we have a new species and we know that we can break this whole new genus off. Had to do with the upper jaw. Why was that unusual? Mm. Well, when I f when we first looked at these two skeletons, uh, the two from Scotland, I did think that they were the first, the same same species, um, both the same Borealestes species. And I had I kind of proceeded that serendipitous yeah, one, right? That, the first one that was found in the 1970s. That's right. So I kind of proceeded just thinking that was the case. Um, but it was really sometimes it's very difficult to tell just um, from looking at a photograph. This is, if you do look at the paper, it's it, the differences between the teeth can be very subtle. But once you actually start to look at it, we of course have 3D scans. So I'm able to rotate them in every direction, and look at every surface of the tooth. It became quite clear that actually the upper teeth are not the same. 
Um, there are there are quite a few differences in the ridges and the cusps I was talking about earlier. The way they're arranged, um, very small differences, but enough that it, I wouldn't put them in the same uh, in the same species. But it, it's subtle. And the other thing that that made it sort of unusual is that the lower teeth are almost identical. So if you just find a lower jaw, it's going to be nearly impossible to tell whether you've got Borealestes serendipitous or Borealestes, the new one, Coolinensis. You really would have to find the upper teeth. And what's unusual is it's always going to be better if you can find both upper and lower teeth, but the lower jaw is one that's often used in paleontology for this purpose, right? That's true. So this is what made it kind of an unusual find was that the lower teeth were not something very that could be used very well for diagnostics between species. Is that correct? Yeah, it appears to be the case for these ones. And that, of course, then leaves us thinking, well, how many other groups might that be true for? It could be that we're underestimating just how many species are out there because for mammals in general in the Jurassic, um, in fact, basically any time in the time of dinosaurs, their fossils are so vanishingly rare. And when we do find them, it tends to be lower jaws that we find for the simple reason that they are really sturdy. You know, they they tend to be denser. The teeth, of course, are, are enamel. And so they're, you know, they're much, much more likely to survive the foss- in the fossil record. So we have more jaws than we have anything else and more teeth. And yet it could be a bit misleading. We might not realise how many species there are out there. Yeah, so the rule has always been you can tell by the bottom teeth. But as I always explain to my students, the number one rule of biology is that there's always an exception to the rule. Yeah, it's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) The last question I want to get to, I always try to make sure I ask all of my guests this, is why is it important for people to know about these these cute little fossils here that you found? And I I say cute because I picture these as like cute little mammals kind of running around. So why why is it important that people know about these? That's a good question. I think actually it's it's for a paleontologist, for anyone who studies fossils, it's an even bigger question. Why should we care about fossils? Because they're all dead, right? Um, So people are asking (laughs) me this an awful lot. And and I think, you know, for these particular ones from Sky, um, they come from this really cool group of mammals that... um, you know, in the time of dinosaurs, people used to think that all the mammals were essentially very boring and they all just looked like mice and that all they did was just eat insects and run around and nothing else. Um, and in the last 20 years, there's been quite a revolution in our knowledge, thanks to all these amazing new fossils from China. And it turns out that mammals at this time, they were lots of different sizes. Some of them were as big as pit bulls and they actually ate baby dinosaurs. And that we have others that were tree climbers, we have burrowers, we have swimmers. So they were doing all the same things in the environment that mammals are doing today. Um, so this, these ones from Sky belong to one of the groups that was really diverse in that way, very ecologically diverse. And we want to understand, first of all, why? How did they become so diverse so early on in their evolution? And the reason that that's important is because it will then tell us about the modern world. How did modern mammals become equally diverse in the modern world? So there's always a direct relevance from the past uh, into the present. And of course, there's also also the selfish uh, thing, which is that we are mammals. And so finding out about any of our sort of ancient relatives also kind of tells us something about ourselves and where we come from. And that seems like a great time for you to plug your book. Tell us a little bit, just real briefly, about this book that you've written that's about to be released in the U.S. And you said it's been out for a couple months elsewhere, at least in England. I don't know about Europe. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so when when I should have been actually doing my research, I was also writing a book. <laughs> um, so it, yeah, it's published. You have no idea how many times I've heard that oh. actual phrase right there. When I'm supposed to be doing this, I found this. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, I, you know, I love telling people about the stuff that I study. And uh, this book is called Beasts Before Us. Um, and it basically comes out of when I was a student and learning about mammals. I was really surprised by all the stuff that I didn't know before and that nobody talks about and that mammals not only have this much much longer history that goes back to the time of dinosaurs but it goes even further back than that um, right back to the first animals that walked on land and so I wanted to tell that story um, because I thought well if I didn't know about it I'm sure a lot of other people don't either and uh, would be interested to know so that's basically what the book is about. But I also weave in things like a little bit about what field work is like and also about the amazing new technologies that we use. And then some really cool stories about um, people that you might never have heard of, uh, like women um, and people of colour who have contributed to paleontology in the past um, and until now haven't really been acknowledged. And you do something very interesting on your Twitter page. You encourage people to take pictures of the book in the little reading nooks where they normally do it and send you the pictures. So once this is released on September 7th here in the U.S., I encourage anybody who's living in the U.S. who buys the book to to take a picture. And I will make sure I put your Twitter handle in the episode description, and that'll be at Lady, and send you a picture of the book, and you can go find examples of like the book in its favorite little setting. So people are using it like an elf on a shelf, only <laughs> it's book in a nook. Yeah, oh, I love it. I didn't, it's funny, I didn't actually ask anyone to do it, but people started doing it and I've just loved it. And I've had <laughs> pictures from uh, from like all around the, the world, well, except the US, because it's not out there yet. It's not here yet. Um, but but yeah. of people, yeah, reading it on the beach and in the pub and, and reading it with their cats. And yeah, I, I love to see the pictures. <laughs> Well, Elsa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I truly appreciate your time. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I've learned a lot, and hopefully our listeners have too. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Once again, Dr. Elsa Pancharoli's paper is in the August issue of the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, and the title of the paper is New Species of Mammaliaform in the Cranium of Borealestes from the Middle Jurassic of the British Isles. See the episode details for a link to her paper. To learn more about Elsa, including her new book, Beasts Before Us, follow her on Twitter, at GScienceLady. That's at G-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-L-A-D-Y. And see the episode details for a link to her website. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.